Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Welcome, everybody, to the first ever live in front of an audience. Here we are, podcast, very special episodes. Went so well. I'm hoping to do lots more of these. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you have suggestions for improvements, anything like that. I was real pumped up about this. And like I said, hoping to do it a lot more in various festivals and um, maybe at colleges. We'll see. Working on lots of stuff. I don't want to, um, I don't have a uh, anything firmed up just yet. But lots of stuff in the works for this podcast and um, I'm doing more shows at a city near you soon. This was during the Cape Fear Comedy Festival in Wilmington. And special thanks to uh, Matt Ward and Timmy Sherhill for uh, being the founders of such a fantastic festival and for taking a chance on this show. Again, it was the first time we did it. We did it at the Dead Crow Comedy Club in Wilmington, which is a fantastic, very hip little cool club in Wilmington, which I will be going back to September 2nd through 4th. You can go to my website and get more details from there. I'll be doing both my regular stand-up act and my um, show, A Good Trip, about psychedelics. And I'm hoping to maybe do another live episode. So um, if you're anywhere around that area, keep an eye out for that. More details soon. And outside of that, enjoy the first ever live Here We Are podcast. Thanks for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Thank you guys very much for coming out the very first this is my very first live podcast of here we are i was hoping we'd have 20 people and that's about exactly what we got i call it a success it's hard to, 
Getting people out at 5.30 on a Thursday for a show is amazing. So thank you guys so much for coming out. So I'll, I'll just introduce the podcast for you, for those of you that aren't familiar, which is 19 of the 20 of you, I imagine. Um, I, it's a science podcast. I, uh, each week I release a new episode. I, I interview scientists in all different fields, and each week is a new episode with a different scientist. Uh, it's something that I have no business doing. Whatsoever. I have no college background or anything like that. I've uh, messed up a good portion of my life. And I eventually decided it was time that I start trying to learn things. And I tried reading um, for a while. And that wasn't really working out for me. So instead I used my uh, D-level celebrity status to trick a bunch of academics into, uh, into teaching me everything that they know. So that's what this podcast is all about. It's a science podcast. We'll have some laughs. We'll have some thought-provoking conversations. And this is the uh, first live one. So who knows how it's going to go. I think it's going to be a great time. Uh, I was very lucky uh, that um, I was here in Wilmington, and I was able to get from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, I got three wonderful scientists from the psychology department, I'm going to bring them on stage for you now. So please give a warm welcome to Julian Keith, Kate Nooner, and Len Lecce, everybody. Lecce. I've been practicing his name for Lecce for a few minutes now. So, um, so to start out, I thought I'd have each guest just kind of introduce themselves to you guys and tell them, uh, tell you guys a little bit about their research and, uh, and what we do, or what they do, and then we'll get into a conversation about their work from there. So, uh, Julian, uh, what do you do? What do I do? That's, yeah. that's a good question. Um, so I'm the, the chair of the Department of Psychology, and uh, my background is officially, wow, the lights are bright. I can't see any of y'all. Do you, do you do this regularly? You stare into bright lights? Yeah, it's pretty scary. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm chair of, of the Department of Psychology. My background is in um, behavioral neuroscience primarily. I spent the first part of my career um, University of Colorado getting my Ph.D. and focusing on the neurobiological mechanisms of memory. And lately... Um, have been shifting my emphasis over to studies of attention and attention and deficit disorder. And um, I have a, a broad range of um, amateur enthusiast interests that, that span from artificial intelligence to evolutionary psychology um, and to like 500 million other things in between. So hopefully we'll hit, hit some of those before we yeah, yeah. I, I, what's uh, what's the thing you're doing with consciousness, or what is it, enlightenment? It's yeah, I'm just working on that. Working All right, we'll get into it. 
uh, <laughs> we'll work our way towards enlightenment by the end. Yeah, it should take about an um, hour. Which, by the way, if anyone wants to come up front here and then uh, at, at all, it'll make it sound, the sound is being pulled off of these mics, so um, Thank you so the laughter will be picked yeah. up better and people listening will be duped into believing this was a huge success. Um, <laughs> and it was. Um, all right, so uh, Kate, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you, you, you have, have look how organized she is. I'm prepared. Like, wow. so type A. She's exactly. so type A. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Some, yeah. Somebody went to school. Absolutely, yeah. Len wouldn't even need to run my profile. You could probably <laughs> guess what it, would, uh, what it would be. Probably Highly pretty. Conscientious. Yeah. She wanted to bring a PowerPoint. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I'm also a professor in the psychology department here at UNCW. And um, my area of research has to do mostly with children, and I study how stressful life experiences influence children's development, so um, kind of a downer topic from uh, things like enlightenment. But but pretty, pretty important because one of the things that's hopeful about it is that a lot of it is preventable. There's a lot of great things that we can do. And in my lab, we study how different behaviors that children do, different things that are happening in their brain, relate to stressful life experiences and try to find ways to promote healthful outcomes. Um, And we look at that by looking at EEG signal. We also have some interesting studies using neurofeedback and seeing how we can teach children about what's actually happening in their brains during stressful experiences and how to change that and help make things better. Um, And we also have things that we do with parents and try to teach them just kind of simple parenting strategies. Um, being a parent is very, very hard. Um, in the classes that I teach, I say that you know kids can really drive you crazy. Um, and that's kind of how some of child maltreatment happens. Parents who maltreat their children, most of them are not bad people. Um, they're really good, well-intentioned people who um, are just struggling to raise their kids. And so by doing some simple parenting things, we can help them out too. Wonderful. I actually go a step further in the prevention. I just tell people to not have children okay. whatsoever. <laughs> and it kind of eliminates all those problems. Right. Len? Uh, and I'd like to say, Kate did not look at any of her notes when she said all that. So oh. that was impressive. Wow. <laughs> it's just a security blanket. So I'm, yeah, security blanket. How is everyone's audio levels to you guys? Everything good? All right. So I'm Len Leitchie, uh, and I received my degree from uh, Arizona State University. Uh, I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist, not under suspension or investigation at this time. Uh, and uh, at this time, let me clarify, at this time. Uh, so I'm a professor at UNCW, and my area of research is uh, assessment, so developing different measures for different psychological concepts. And uh, we specialize also in measuring decision-making and how that uh, occurs in two environments, um, legal decision-making and also in the health context. And we look at specifically how individual differences, so these may be things like personality traits um, and how those interact with different decision-making scenarios. So if you might imagine you're exposed to some health threat, for example, um, how individuals respond to that health threat and how there are variations as a function of that individual, if they're particularly neurotic or hypochondriacal, and also the nature of the message, for example, or the information that they're being provided with. So a little bit of coming from from an individual difference perspective as well as the, um, the context for that. And what does 
guys. Oh, hi, so, hypochondriasis. I got uh, you guys. There you go. I'm sorry. Um, so hypochondriasis would be a preoccupation or fear of illness. So like Woody Allen is probably known as the stereotypical hypochondriac. You know, I've, I've got a tumor in my head so large I can feel it when I blink kind of comment. That's from one of his films. Uh, these individuals are very health anxious. Um, and there's a lot of variability on that. Some people highly health anxious. Some people, in fact, go at the other end of the spectrum, which they are completely um, disinterested and uh, to, actually to their detriment. So they have some clear, you know, large goiters and they ignore them. Um, you happen so to be one of those. I people. may be one of those people. Yeah. yeah, yeah Len, Len needed a hip replacement. Yeah. Will he you he was wearing his show wallet. your goiter to us? Yes. <laughs> now, he, he was thought he was wearing his wallet on the wrong pocket. And I, I was looking actually, for he needed an entirely <laughs> new hip. Uh, He's like, no, it's nothing. It's really nothing. <laughs> so you're my dad, basically. Yeah, basically you're yeah. everybody's dad. Yeah, probably. Uh, sadly. <laughs> Can I can I tell you a story sure. about Lynn? Yeah, yeah. So Lynn actually testified <laughs> in front of Congress. I did. He went he went and um, gave them his expert opinion about the probability of anything bad ever happening and they shouldn't worry about anything. And that was like the week after they had been sent anthrax. That's right. So, yeah. But you he's like, no, you guys are paranoid. You're all a bunch of hypochondriacs. Yeah. Nothing bad could ever happen. Well, and actually, just to, just to kind of turn the little lesson on that. So if, I don't know if anybody remembers that whole anthrax uh, scare. And they, they used to have those levels on TV, you know, that said the threat level, and they would have a different color. And one of the things we were basically telling them in this congressional committee was how stupid that was, because basically one of the things, whenever you have a health threat, one of the important pieces that you want to have is some ameliorative, some action that you can take to resolve this, or at least to minimize it, to just tell people, hey, you should be really scared now. That doesn't, that just incites panic. Stay it scared. Really, yeah, stay really scared now. Wins elections, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the threat level should be really high at that time. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes worry that uh, some of my, my guests, I, I hope that everything will be accessible and they're, they're able to relate to people that might not know much about the subject matter, but if you talk to Congress, then you can talk to anybody. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, really, you, you probably we, talked to their aides, right? We their, probably, yeah. yeah. Was, there were a couple of congressmen yeah. in the room, but it was mostly their, uh, they send their aides to listen, up. and they don't show up actually in the room. So, <laughs> Sounds less impressive. Congress, we I don't show up. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Um, so, so regarding these, uh, these individual differences, you test this in a variety of ways. I actually took one of, one of the tests ahead of time, uh, a personality test. Could you talk a little bit about the, the big five and what sure. that is? Yeah, so one, one of the better known uh, tests, uh, personality tests that in the field is uh, referred to the NEO, uh, five-factor inventory, and it measures what's commonly referred to as the big five. Uh, the reason they're called the Big Five is um, about 50 years ago, they analyzed language, all of the adjectives that describe human behavior, and they did some math to basically break them down, factor analysis, into basic five factors that could capture all thousands of these adjectives to describe human behavior, and they came up with these Big Five. And they've actually replicated very similar Big Fives in other languages. And so these are thought to be the main five traits that describe human behavior. And so the five that you're measured on are neuroticism, which is a measure of uh, emotional stability. 
So if you're high on neuroticism, you're emotionally unstable. Are we going to so, reveal your scores here? Is yeah, this, uh, well, I also okay. – so give, a, give like an example of a couple of the questions that would sure. be for neuroticism. So the, uh, every it'll be every fifth item starting with the first. So the first one says, I am not a worrier, which is a reverse-coded neuroticism item. So if you wrote that you are not a worrier, you'd be low on neuroticism. If you disagreed with that item, then you say – I, in fact, meaning you are a warrior, then you would have gotten some extra points uh, on that neuroticism. And if every fifth item would be... So there's good. just five. Uh, so you either put in strongly agree, agree, neutral, strongly disagree, and, and disagree. Right. And um, so that's, that's neuroticism. And, and in case you're wondering, I, I have my scores here. I, I do remember you were average on neuroticism, if I recall. Yeah, I, I and then it said in parentheses, not emotionally unstable, but not especially stable. Right. Sweet spot. That's a sweet spot. Oh, yeah. You know, that's my new pickup yes. line, by the way. <laughs> I'm not especially <laughs> stable, but... No, uh, you know, what's interesting about neuroticism is that you know, people who are really low on it, of course, are, are considered uh, they can handle stress well and those sorts of things. And people score very high. There's a lot of things like mental illness associated with it. But there is actually a plus to being highly neurotic. Um, and you is, get to run for president. You can run for president. <laughs> correct. That's, that's one plus. But actually, another one is that uh, neuroticism is often a fuel for being like a really hard worker. So in fact, some of the Hardest workers uh, uh, around. Other people don't are, kill you, but yeah, you kill yourself. Exactly. You, you're yeah. just really preoccupied yeah. and worried about failure, and thus you work really hard. So these are actually some sometimes really good workers. There, in fact, a study that looked at the best students were people who were highly neurotic. Uh, so even though they're going to have mental illness later on in life, but at least at that stage they're going to thrive. Um, yeah. All, uh, the, yeah, all the honor students. All the honor, most yeah. of them probably are. Actually, they, they did a study on... Uh, They'll specific. be able to afford therapy, though. Yeah, one of the debates... That, I mean, Lynn's telling you the, the story from his camp in the personality world, but the big debate in the personality world is, is it the big five or is it the big six? With the uh, like the got, intelligence quotient. Now you got or? you got the camp that that says really there's there's six factors. There's but, more, and that's actually come up as a result of some of this cross cultural analysis where additional factors have cropped up. Um, ironically, the the disagreement is really just on one of the factors breaking down into two factors, and that turns it into the six. But um, oh, it's a dogfight. Yeah, it's a dogfight. But for at least for the purpose, you got the big five inventory, which are right. the more common ones. So we, we can go to the next and one. Extra. Well, I, I also think it's uh, important to point out the reason why there's people on this varying spectrum is because there are pros and cons to these things. This is Otherwise, evolution would have weeded out people that are highly neurotic if there was right. no benefit to it or lowly neurotic. So there are people on these varying. And I'm just smack dab. Perfect on neuroticism. Right, perfect on neuroticism. Well, and in fact, the perfection can even occur in a couple. So you'll often see, you know, the highly neurotic husband or wife, and then offsetting that, you might have the spouse that's on the other end of the spectrum. And so they achieve their equilibrium as a couple. Oh, if you that's will. interesting. So, yeah. Huh. Um, <laughs> So extroversion is the uh, second one that you took. I, if I recall, you were smack dab in the middle on that one as well, if I'm remembering Yeah, correctly. people would probably be surprised. surprised. People would probably think that I'm very extroverted, but I can, people I can kind of like take them or leave them. Um, <laughs> I have no problem spending lots of time by myself, and I have no problem being the center of attention. Yeah. And it's 
I'm pretty indifferent about uh, either one. So it says, not introverted, but not especially extroverted. Not nearly as good of a pickup line. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you described it nicely when you described uh, your two preferences for being with people. And it also focuses on sensation-seeking, too. So high extroverts also tend to be more interested in seeking out high-stimulation activities. Mm. Low extroverts yeah. tend to kind of... Uh, I do that, yeah. I'm an adrenaline junkie, yeah. but I also okay. like You're going inward time. as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so. It, it captures and, and a lot of these things, I think some of them, like, the, the result, so far the two were average, the rest of mine won't be. Um, but, but I think a lot of these, you guys could probably guess. Take, take a pretty good guess at where you're at, and you, went, you probably wouldn't be too far off if you took a test. You know, there's actually a study that was published not too long ago where they went into people's homes, and they just looked at the homes and had people rate what they thought their big five scores would be, and they were actually pretty accurate just by describing you know, how they keep their home and things of that nature. So. There's an um, artificial intelligence program that will look at things you write and give you that profile from, well. from your written... Oh, so the robots yeah. are yeah. this close to taking over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, and they have us all figured out already. Um, yeah, that's it. We, we had an episode on pronouns and how, how people, uh, like, they'll analyze poetry and uh, these pronouns that we don't pay any attention to, like I and we and that sort of thing. Um, you don't really even hear it consciously, but you can, you can deduce a lot from how people use these. So they've gone through um, all, the, all of these dark poets and plugged them into an algorithm and were able to figure out without telling the computer which ones were which, which poets um, likely committed suicide and which ones hadn't by stuff like uh, they would use I, um, I a lot more, so they were, they were thinking about themselves a lot more, which is something depressed people uh, tend to do. So um, that's kind of along the lines of... Right what we're talking about with that. Absolutely. Um, and so the third one is openness. Yeah, openness to new experience. Uh, so this is often a marker for uh, creativity. So if you score particularly high on this, you're, uh, which I believe that was Fingers you. Uh, Very high. Yeah. yeah I, so. I, I was like, that was a crazy score. I was yeah. like you, off the charts. You were very there. high. And so this would be your unconventional. You like uh, essentially non-traditional things. You like to... Think about things um, in different ways. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this could be a pickup line. Uh, this, uh, so, so this, and and the opposite of this. If you were low score, would mean you're very sort of dogmatic, uh, limited in sort of your thinking. You stay between the lines, so to speak, in life. Uh, and 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 that, uh, as I mentioned, is a, a particularly good marker for someone's ability to thrive in unstructured settings. Interesting occupational mm-hmm. sort of thing, right? It's uh, uh, a comedian. I travel a lot. I'm in lots of weird situations. And right. I, I can't get enough novelty in my life. Per- well, that perfect. And that is, and I think that was your highest score, if I recall. Your your most yeah yeah by a long shot score. yeah. Um. So agreeableness. Right, agreeableness. So this is sort of the friendliness factor. And by the way, when I sent. Shane his scores. I, I wrote at the at the beginning. Don't shoot the messenger. So some of some of these, uh, you know, they're, they're I, I didn't take available. any offense. I was okay. like, oh yeah, I could have told you that. Yeah. He emailed me back and said nailed it. So obviously yeah. he was in full agreement. But agreeableness. Uh, so as I said, it's sort of the friendliness factor. If you score high on this, you tend to be someone who 
basically gets along and, and is very motivated to get along with other people, very friendly, etc. You're and annoying, <laughs> is what he's trying to say. <laughs> if you score lower on this, then you are, you know, not especially interested in um, being appealing, appeasing, if you will, uh, uh, to other individuals, that you've got your opinions, and that's more important, say, than making friends, if you will. Yeah, what's interesting is all of this stuff, there's like, you know, some descriptions that, uh, that you know, are dead on, and then others are like cynical. I'm exceptionally cynical. Um, I'm I can be a pretty irritable person. I'm pretty suspicious. I'm I'm not like a conspiracy guy or anything. I just don't really trust people. Um, <laughs> not it's not that I think they're like trying to like work against me. It's just I just don't have faith in them. And um, uh, vengeful. Um, I'm not a vengeful person. Uncooperative. I can be and uh, manipulative, and I can be manipulative. So watch out for that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so then the last one is conscientiousness. Correct. So conscientiousness. Which... This is. Are, are you guys picking up on what my podcast is? By the way, it's just me getting free therapy each <laughs> week. <laughs> So, I think the couch is over the top, but all right, we'll, uh, we'll keep going. No, uh, so conscientiousness, if you score high on this, it means you're very organized, dutiful. Um, you you um, uh, go out of your way to you know, make sure things are getting done, uh, and, and that's your focus. And this is a great predictor of how hard people work, basically. If you're highly conscientious, these are generally very hard, hard workers. Um, lower scores, you know, you see terms... Well, I'll let you read your profile. I, I'm like. very low. Yes. Very low. That means he put aimless, unreliable, <laughs> lazy, careless, lax, neglect, weak-willed, hedonistic, and fucking proud of it. <laughs> well, there you have it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, these individuals... Uh, you know, uh, often predicts success in places like school or, or not, and uh, work. <laughs> I was a horrible student. <laughs> so, and, and in fact, that's probably one of the stronger predictors of success in those environments, meaning school and work, uh, is the conscientiousness measure. And it, he actually wrote me, he was like, for this category, for, for those scoring in this category, I often suggest that I wouldn't necessarily plan on these people picking you up at the airport as planned, but if you're throwing a party, be sure to invite them. Yeah, get an Uber. Come on. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll be fun once you show up. That's right. That's right. But this is intro. We were talking beforehand how a lot of these things, you know, they don't nail every, Like I'm on time for everything all the time. But if you if you did the study and went through my house, my room would be one of the messiest you've ever seen. It would be horrifying to most people. And I kind of like it. Like, I really like a messy hotel. I don't right, like right. when things are clean. Very good. So, 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 we- so, uh, so that's the big five um, personality test. Uh, so, so, Kate, how does, how, how does childhood upbringing affect some of these... Uh, personality traits. <laughs> well, how, how did how did you how did you end up having printouts uh, for for Pog? Because my if you take something like conscientiousness or um, openness, like my my parents, I would say are not very open people. I had a pretty strict 
upbringing and conscientiousness. My mom has like OCD. It was almost yeah. like damaging how like she needed to be cleaning all the time and it drove me crazy as a kid. Well, they, they talk about with childhood and in terms of how it relates to parenting that there's a biosocial model. So there's kind of the wiring that you have in terms of how you are and, you know, in terms of meeting you today and talking with you a little bit, you know, things kind of related to attention and kind of maybe being a very wiggly kid and being an active kid and things like that or some guesses. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the environmental factors, the social factors in terms of your family. And when your individual factors and the factors in your family don't mesh up, then it can lead to a lot of challenges. Um, now, it doesn't mean they need to mesh up perfectly, but, for example, if you have a really shy child in a really gregarious family, that can be a really hard environment for that shy child to be in. Similarly, if you have a really kind of wiggly, individualistic child in a pretty um, by-the-book strict family, that can also feel like an invalidating environment, mm -hmm. um, which can lead to problems in terms of, you know, a variety of different things from anxiety to not doing as well in school to having difficulties with peers. To sneaking out of the house and totally. getting arrested. Yes, totally. <laughs> things, I don't know who things, I'm talking about things, there. But. Th things like that. Right. Um, and I think we had talked about kind of an ideal parenting style as parents who are um, high in terms of their demands, but also really high in terms of responsiveness. So they're parents who see what their kid can do and what their kid's strengths are, and they change their demands based on what their kid is really into. Um, parenting style that can be a little bit more difficult is an authoritarian parenting style where you're high on demands but you're low on responsiveness, so it's kind of my way or the highway. Um, and that can be a difficult environment for kids because a lot of times what your kid, what you hope for your kid and what is best for them are two different things. Hmm. Um, I'm curious, are there, are, are there any studied gender differences in these, in these personality traits? Uh, there are. Uh, there's a few that are, you, you might guess, where the, some of the bigger differences occur. So, for example, neuroticism, uh, females generally score uh, considerably higher than males. So, in fact, your scores when we... Did you we, just call women crazy for uh, real? <laughs> <laughs> no, you did. <laughs> I just said there are normative differences. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there, uh, when you look at the mean scores, so your scores were compared to the typical male. If we had actually put your scores for neuroticism and just compared them to females, there, there's actually about a five-point mean difference between males and females on that. Oh. So, so females do, on average, score a, a little higher um, uh, than, than males do on, on that one. That's probably the most um, consistent gender difference that you see on, on the big five. Um, the, the other thing, and it actually relates to something you'd mentioned to Kate, because she was talking about the biosocial model, the big five also vary in terms of how much they're influenced by genetics, which obviously could also play a role in terms of some of the gender differences. And the first two, uh, particularly neuroticism, has some of the stronger uh, genetic uh, contributions. One of the ones with the weakest genetic contributions is actually one of your high scores, openness to new experience. That one tends to be much more environmentally influenced than, uh, than have uh, what they refer to as the heritability coefficient. And when it's a high heritability, it means it's inherited, a uh, mm. high component for that. What about conscientiousness? Women, women seem to me to be higher in 
It's actually, um, yes, so that is correct. There is a gender difference. It's also one of those traits, though, that is a little lower on the genetic component. Um, so all of these uh, big five range from anywhere from about a 0.4 up to somewhere around a 0.6 heritability coefficient. So a few uh, studies that have been done looking at where the strongest genetic contributions are. And they range, which basically means... Genetics accounts for anywhere from about 40 to 60% of the variability. The higher genetic contributions are at the 60% end. The lower ones, like uh, openness to new experience, tend to be closer to the 40% end. And it's the environmental factors that seem to predict those ones better. Um, I was curious if you guys think that... So you mentioned when um, like married couples might be on, on two opposite ends and kind of balance each other out. Do you think that there's a, a possibility of, of a way in which that's, that men are advertising or, or females are advertising themselves to kind of come to, like, if I think about conscientiousness, if you think about, like, if men are lower, if you think about, like, chivalry, which is kind of like a conspicuous advertisement of chivalrous behavior, because really it's, it's like a nonsense. It's a very low cost, like, oh, I'll open this door for you. Like, you're not really doing anything. It's kind of and they say chivalry is dead, but that was, uh, like, people, people used to, like, throw coats over puddles. The guys, guys did that. That was when, like, women had to do the laundry. That wasn't, like, a really big, <laughs> like, 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 I didn't, it was all, it was all, it's all very, like, phony kind of low-cost stuff. Like, you open a door for a lady, it's like, oh, see, I took the time to open the door, and I walked all the way around the car. Look who's dad material. You know, like, I, I could raise a baby. <laughs> Not much more to it than that. I wonder if there's ways in which people kind of advertise themselves, you know, to kind of... It, it, people present themselves in different ways than how they actually are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, certainly when you, when you think of dating behavior, so, for example, early dates when you're presenting yourself, and there's a, some interesting literature on that. W one of the things that is true, though, is on initial dates, most people do attempt to at least put themselves out there as somewhat psychologically stable, uh, for at least, at least initially. Um, and it is the case that normally when you're first interacting with the um, a potential dating partner, you really tend not to show a great deal about yourself, whether it's phony chivalry, as, as you were referring to, but... Uh, it's really the situation that guides the behavior. So if, you, if I was to ask you, you know, what's first date behavior like, you'll find out more about first date situations. If I want to know about individual's character coming out, that'll be date number seven, you know, where we're going to find out more if you're neurotic. Now, mind you, if someone is really neurotic, you will probably see it on date number one. Um, uh, right. But at least initially, it's probably more the situation that drives the behavior and then and then the character kind of comes out um, what the, the terminology they use is called a situational script so if the situational script is high as it would be on a first date meaning we could all kind of generate the sort of behavior you would do uh, if I asked you what would you do if you were riding an elevator situational scripts pretty high it's you know pretty standard you stand in you walk you look at the numbers you look at the doors you know you don't face the person because right. the situational script is really high there as it would be on a first date 
as you get to scenarios where the situational script is weaker, that's when your character predicts what you will do in those settings. And as I said, I'll uh, date a little further down the line will probably be a much more revealing about the person than some of that initial behavior. Although your idea is certainly interesting to look at um, what behaviors might do to troll for potential mates, for example, uh, right. that might be advantageous, for example. So you first meet a lady and, and you're like... Uh, you know, some guy's giving her trouble, and and you, you like step up to him, right? And then on the eighth date, you're like, "Yeah, she's on her own," right. <laughs> that, that sort of thing. So, so getting since uh, since I'm making this all about me, um, uh, Kate and Julian, you do a lot of work with uh, ADHD. Yep. Yep. Can you talk yep. a little bit about your work? Well, I, I've been doing work with adults with ADHD, like you. And um, <laughs> Kate, Kate and I have collaborated on um, some work with children with ADHD, and our work has um, been focused, as Kate said earlier, on using EEG neurofeedback or biofeedback. Um, what is biofeedback? It's using biological measurements um, that occur in response to certain events um, or certain states to help people become aware of actually what's happening to them internally so they can um, you know often when you're in a distracted state for example you may not know while you're distracted that you're distracted later you may have the the metacognition and meta-awareness to look back and say yeah I drove all the way down here and don't remember driving all the way down here I was thinking about something else but it turns out that when you are in a focused state of mind there are um, pretty reliable brain wave patterns, signatures. I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't call them signatures. They're not that, that precise. But there are, there are strong correlates of focused awareness. So one thing you can do with people who have a hard time maintaining stable focused concentration is when their brain slips off into EEG patterns that are um, associated with mind wandering or self-talking rather than paying attention to what you're supposed to be paying attention to, a signal comes back through a machine like a computer to tell you with a tone or a visual signal saying, hey, that thing you're doing right now, that's called not paying attention. Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn to pay attention, try to get back up on the bar again and try to keep the signal going in a, in a particular way that's associated with paying attention. So you become more acutely aware of what those signals are, first by getting a clue from your external coach, the, the computer or, or whoever's monitoring this, and then you learn to translate that into the kind of internal signals that accompany that so you can see them for yourself as they're arising and bring yourself back when you need to. Hmm. Makes sense? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so I saw a biofeedback thing years ago that stuck in my mind for whatever reason. It was, it was about people with uh, insomnia, and what they did was they, they hooked, like, electrodes up to their fingertips or whatever, and they would have them. It was just taking the temperature of their hand, and when you fall asleep, the temperature goes from your core and cools down and goes out your extremities. So they had people imagine themselves, uh, like, the, the heat coming out of their core and going toward their extremities, but they could actually see on the screen the temperature rising or lowering so they would know if they were kind of focusing in the right direction and it was able to put them in a, uh, 
in a, in a better sleep state. So that's that's the sort of thing that you're doing. So, but in your in your case, but you're hopefully eventually I could just wear a helmet. And then it could be. Yeah. It could. I've always wanted yeah, to wear a helmet. Need, a lot of people have told me that I should. Uh, and and uh, and then as soon as like my attention, it could just yeah. give me a little zap. It doesn't even have like, to be a. It doesn't even have to be a helmet. It can just be a single sensor that's picking up brain waves. And um, Julian you, actually wears one pretty much at all times because um, it looks cool and works with the students and. Uh, I mean, he wears it into the classes. He's got it on quite do, a bit. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I do. Really just, it's a gimmick. It's yeah. a gimmick. Well, one, but, I mean, in my personal, like, I really I enjoy the way my mind works because I go off on these weird tangents yeah. and I daydream a lot. I yep. always have. And I like daydreaming. I mean, I know it's not good if you're like, Working in a factory or whatever, but for my yeah. job, I'd find it to be. If you're a surgeon, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder what aliens are thinking about right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's probably. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, I mean, I guess my question is: Is ADHD a problem because of our modern world yeah. needing people to have these kind of very focused yeah. cubicle jobs, yeah, or yeah. I mean, why I is it on the you're spectrum? Saying. I mean, it, you're saying is it a feature or a glitch? You know, like is it a bug or a feature? Is it is it something that's a property that has useful right, right, right? You know, features, things you can do with it, like dream up comedy yeah. skits and things like that, and absolutely. And you you don't want to kill off any part of your mind, right? So that's a part of your mind. There's you, a few things yeah. I could definitely do without. Yeah. There's like, so, we, oh, get that out of there. Oftentimes. We can take care of that later. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> there's there's definitely advantages to mind wandering and being able to do it, but also to be able to not do it when it's disadvantageous, to have intentional control over it. So to be able to use it when it's the tool you need, but some people can't get out of it. Like people who ruminate continuously about things that are just eating away at them and really detract uh, yeah. from I the don't, quality. I don't like that part very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah and that, right. that's what you want to be able to, to help with. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, it, it's great that kids, and Kate is an expert with kids, so she can correct me if I, I'm wrong here, but... It's great when kids are um, spirited and high energy and want to get out and explore and don't want to sit at a desk all day. And and actually, it's great when adults are like that, too. But when you actually can't because you've developed the habit of just never stopping and never focusing and settling down, when you can't do it anymore, you've got a disability that can interfere with your quality of life you can't have a conversation mm. that unfolds and you can can't stay with the person because you know five seconds is too long i'm gone then the quality of your relationships is going to decline pretty fast and the kinds of things you are going to have the ability to do are going to be compromised so you really want to have all those mental muscles right you want to have the mental muscle to be able to stay tuned in when you need to and the mental muscle to go like on wild fantasy runs in your head when you want to do that. Hmm. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like sometimes, yeah. It, 
sometimes like with a lady you want to be all sensitive and then sometimes yeah. you got to be a man yeah like we sometimes. all have to wear these many hats it was the best metaphor that i could think of yeah. on, on the moment I, I don't always knock it out of the park everybody right. i like that also i was just assuming that usually i knock it out of the park uh, <laughs> sorry that's yeah. right yeah. Um, so, so Kate, what, what do you do with uh, children? You know, yeah, that wasn't really a clear segue into talking about children, but um, <laughs> I, I, no, no, I'm, I'm, I meant children with ADHD. Right, right. Um, Nailed it. <laughs> but um, you know, I think as Julian said, one of the hardest things about ADHD, you know, in terms of school, that's you know that's hard. We want you know kids to do well, but the the problem with kids not doing well in school is it really affects their self esteem in terms of other things. You know, whether you can do algebra pretty well or you're, you know, a great, a great writer may or may not impact you at all when you're an adult. You know, as a kid in school, you have to be a generalist, good at everything. But as an adult, we're mostly specialists. So if you don't like doing algebra, never do it again. You'll be fine. Um, but if you have ADHD, which is a real problem, you know, we're all inattentive, but people who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are really inattentive in a way that negatively impacts their life. And that's certainly true you know, for kids. And, you know, the social implications of I can't succeed anything, I can't form friends with people. A lot of kids with ADHD are pretty annoying kids. Um, and they, you know, it's, it's not... Jeez. Yeah, sorry, I, I was looking at you, yeah. Some comedians, too. She's a clinical psychologist. <laughs> and as much as it's hard being around an annoying kid, it's hard to be an annoying kid. You know, you don't want to be, but you can't help yourself. You don't know how to not be touching other people or getting out of your chair or doing things that are really bothersome. And that can lead to, you know, lifelong problems. Even if you never have to do algebra again, you do need people who you love and who are friends in your life. And that's how it can have lifelong implications. Hmm. That is very interesting. So I, I, I do like the biofeedback um, right. approach much more than the approaches that are very popular these days. What, what, I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble here, but do you guys have a take on on Ritalin or Adderall or, or can you explain what exactly it's doing or can, I, I, I don't yeah. really know much about it. All it's I know um, I took an Adderall once right before recently, the show. Out of, out of, <laughs> out of curiosity I was, I was like <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I'm zoned in no, I, I took it because I was like because I, I have a, a friend who was like oh I just get all this work done and blah 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 I'm like well there are times when I need to like do paperwork and whatnot, and I just simply can't be bothered and uh, so I was like oh, I'll try an Adderall I tried one and I immediately I was like oh this is this is cocaine this is no, it's, this it's, is it's, absolutely it's yeah and the, well meth. that's I'd never done meth so I didn't yeah. know so I was the closest yeah. I had done coke before and I was like oh this is this is they give this to children I cannot yeah. believe that they give it it's to a children it's powerful stimulant yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's ironic that kids who can't sit still can sometimes respond to this really super powerful stimulant that in a manner that makes them sit still. And that's, that's one of the kind of um, paradoxes of this, right? And so there are theories about why that happens, and we know a little bit about um, you know, what happens in the brain when you take methamphetamine or Adderall um, but kids that can't sit still sometimes move to actually generate 
more neural activity and they're below the optimal level of arousal for feeling good and movement generates more overall brain activity and sometimes the stimulant generates enough brain activity so that you can feel good without moving mm. <laughs> <Make sense? laughs> yeah i want to feel good without moving yes. that's it's kind yeah. of the Kind of the point I mean, of life, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, yeah. The orgasmatron. Yeah, right. <laughs> you didn't get to see Kate's face yeah. when you said orgasmatron. I made that it face many times wonderful. for you. Yeah. Just, um, sit there, <laughs> brother, and just to be get clear, the that machine. Was, yeah. just, that was a just to be face. clear, that, that was, was Julian <laughs> Keith, uh, yeah. chair of the psychology department. We'll do a little post-editing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we can. But, you know, Adderall, you know, one of the things they say, ADD for all, um, it was originally developed as um, a way, an appetite suppressant uh, marketed toward women. Um, and they found that one of the side effects, which there really are no side effects of medication, just effects, but one of the other effects of it was um, that people reported, you know, being able to focus a little bit more and kind of get things done. They felt more goal-oriented. So they thought, wow, you know, weight loss medication, why not give that to growing children? Um, and largely that's what it was repackaged as. Um, and you know, if because none of these people saw Requiem for a Dream, I take totally. it. Totally, she was. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm just trying to transition right. into when we talk about sad children. So, sure. no, <laughs> so no, Requiem for a Dream is a good transition. Into it it is. Um, and you know, for for you know, if, if if a stimulant works well for you, that's really good. Um, you know, as a developing having a developing kid who really needs to grow putting them on something that's going to potentially limit that is concerning. But if it works well, that's fine. Um, you know, for a lot of, you know, parents and kids, though, they have the misconception that it's kind of a magical thing that's just going to work and solve all the problems. A lot of the problems that happen related to ADHD, especially in the maltreated children that I study, don't have anything to do with focus. They have a lot of things that are happening in their environments, um, experiences that they had in the past, anxiety that they have. That's a big thing that really makes it hard for kids to focus. And, you know, among maltreated children, the number one diagnosis is ADHD. But if you look in the diagnostic manual and you look at the, you know, criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, and I show this to my classes when I teach it, you can take one and directly map it onto another. Um, but post-traumatic stress disorder is a lot more stressful because that, you know, tells parents, well, something happened to your child um, that was really bad. Um, the treatment for it, there's no pill for it. Um, so it involves coming in for a lot of therapy. Um, so it's a lot easier to say, oh, I'll just give my child a medication and hope that works. Yeah. Hmm. So, so I, I met, did you say um, the children, children that are maltreated, or in, what's, so, what's, so kids, are there like specific ways in which they're? they're yeah. So the main way that children are maltreated in the United States is neglect, um, and the common ways that kids are neglected is not having adequate housing or medical care. Those are probably the two main ways that children are neglected in the United States. Another main way is educational neglect. Usually families, if parents are working a lot, um, they may not be able to get their kids to school, and a lot of times they're staying home alone, so that's kind of a double or triple whammy in terms of neglect. Other types of child abuse are more common things you think of, like physical abuse, sexual abuse, and emotional abuse. Um, which are really challenging too, but neglect, the most common diagnosis kids have for that is um, ADHD. 
Um, mm. And a lot of that, you know, isn't related to any kind of organic problem, any biological problem in them, but is more due to really having a um, rearing environment that hasn't been nurturing to them in their whole life. That's why the Centers for Disease Control talk about having safe, stable, safe, and nurturing environments for kids as being really the number one way to stop child maltreatment. Um, and it seems like you know common sense, um, but it's something that is harder to put into practice than that, you know, than it seems. What about um, what about parents that are uh, overbearing? Uh, what, what does that be, because uh, just to uh, stick up for uh, Paul and Kim Moss for a minute, they right. they they didn't they didn't neglect me in in any way. They they were not at least in that regard weren't the cause of my. Uh, ADHD, um, but they were a bit overbearing. Sorry, I just, I just right. uh, stuck up for them and then put them down three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were loving people. Well, they speak, were just very overbearing. Yes, speaking hypothetically, anyway, because we wouldn't do real therapy here on a podcast. Um, but well, I, I just want to get a cry out. That's all I want. How about a hug? Need a hug. Uh, catharsis is kind of a myth, but. Um, <laughs> Is um, you know I think parents who are really I you you don't talk much but when you do you have fantastic lines like catharsis is kind of a a, a myth and I also liked there's no such thing as side effects there's only effects <laughs> boom that's a t-shirt that wasn't in the notes either <laughs> you better pull that I want to see what gems you have. On, on the paper, if this is what just what you're <laughs> improvising. All right, sorry to. Um, that's my, you know, my thing. That's the, that's, that's the ADHD brain. Right. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times, you know, parents who are really um, overbearing are well intentioned. They do it because they love their children very much, and I'm sure your parents loved you very, very much. There's the positive plug toward What's them. not the love? <laughs> the positive um, They're still just hypothetical right. people that we're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Um, hypothetical Paul and Kim Mosses. <laughs> um, I think the trouble comes in when you, you know, when I talked about the biosocial model earlier that, you know, and people with kids know this, whatever your expectations you have about your children, a lot of them you have to kind of chuck out the window when you get your kid. Um, because they're going to just, if you want them to be awesome, which I'm sure your parents do and you know, we all do, you're going to have to be their flavor of awesome. And you know, I think the problem with what you're saying, overbearing parents is, or authoritarian parents, is that they won't let you or they don't want you to be your flavor of awesome. They, want they have to a be very their, strict definition yeah, of what awesome, awesome is. Awesome is, exactly. Mm. And then the problem with that is, as a kid, you know, you're awesome. You know, we all have our flavor of awesome, but you don't feel that way. You don't, you know, get to grow in those ways. And so that can, you know, lead kids to not reaching their full potential, which is such a shame because that's what the parents want in the end anyway. Third T-shirt, feel your flavor of awesome, everybody. <laughs> They're cranking them out. So, 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 what are a lot of these very? Because you talk about, um, you know, abuse and uh, and most people think, 
Well, that's, that's something other people are doing that, didn't, that doesn't happen in most households. These are just the worst of the worst people. But there's a lot of neglect and abuse. And, I mean, you mentioned that neglect is one of the main ones. What, what are, I've always been a big advocate of a very controversial idea that I think, I think that parents, to get their tax benefits or whatever from children, should have to take some sort of test or, or some sort of class that there's just some very basic things that people don't know, like breast milk is better than baby formula, stuff, stuff like that. What, what kind of simple things do you think that you, do you wish that every parent knew about? You know, I think the simple things, you know, things like, you know, breast milk or baby formula are kind of, no offense, kind of least of our worries. I think the, the main thing that parents have to worry about that would be great for all parents to learn is how to have positive interactions with their children. Parents are really focused a lot of time on don't do this, don't do that, you know, curtailing various behaviors, make sure you get this done, you know, being very focused on that. But it's really those positive times with your kid, you know, saying to them, you know, I love you so much. I'm so glad that you're in my family. You know, I'm just so lucky to have you here. And even though I think almost any parent you meet, including parents who maltreat their children, would absolutely say that. You know, most maltreating parents, especially ones who are neglecting their kids and things like that, it's because they're trying to go to work to make a better life for their children and don't have childcare. Um, or it's, you know, because various life circumstances happen that made them lose housing or something like that, but not because they don't love their children and wouldn't do anything for them. So what do you then do? So the damage is already done. What do you, you, you do a lot of work with kind of treating and, and correcting some of these behaviors. What, what can be done? Um, you know, the earlier you catch it, the better things can go. There's been a lot of great research in terms of looking at um, Romanian orphans who have been adopted, and um, they compare Romanian orphans who've stayed in the institutional setting um, for many years um, versus those who are adopted into families uh, before the age of two, and they compare that to children who are just kind of always with their families. Um, and the kids, even though, so Romanian orphanages are kind of or were known as being highly neglectful environments where there were 50 or 100 children to one caregiver so children were not getting what they needed and if children were adopted into loving families before the age of two they did just as well as the other kids now that's not going to happen in the blink of an eye um, but sort of the the public school system that our government envisions for North Carolina so, you know 100 to yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 not not ideal. Total neglect. Not not yeah. going there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, um, kids who are in um, you know neglectful or abusive environments for longer than that, and that's one of the big problems with child maltreatment. A lot of the treatments that are developed to help kids, including things for post traumatic stress disorder, are for things like a child has a parent die or a child has cancer. All of those are very serious things. But the treatment for that is much more straightforward. Maltreated children, it's kind of like, you know, rather than the natural fight or flight, I see a bear in the woods and I run, it's the bear's my mom or dad. Um, and so you're constantly in this stressed environment, and um, making changes with that can be done, but they require a lot of intensive treatment and take time. Um, okay, fourth T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> Don't abandon your baby in Romania. It's a little dark. Mm -hmm. They'll sell like heavy metal shows and stuff. 
Um, I so uh, I wanted to kind of tie some of these things together. If, if uh, I, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a through line where it just helps to be mindful uh, in general and understand yourself better in some of these personality tests. So I say I take this personality test and I go, I'm exceptionally low in conscientiousness, and it's it has it's been a problem in a lot of relationships, and and I want to change this. How how malleable are these? Um, <laughs> are these kind of personalities? That's a great question. Uh, so when we talk about those factors, the highest level of those factors, like neuroticism, extroversion, those are the most difficult points at which to have malleability. Uh, but it doesn't mean you can't have change. If you want to think about those factors almost as a, like a hierarchy, so at the very highest end you have these factors, then you have a number of traits that kind of feed into each of those factors. We'll, we'll pick one as an example. If you, let's say, start at the high end of extroversion, and you start thinking, well, what are the traits that feed into that? So you're gregarious, and you're sociable, and you're uh, outgoing, and you can sort of list a whole bunch of them. And then at the next level down, you could start thinking, well, what are the habitual behaviors that you do that lead into those traits? And so the habits that you might do would be things like uh, speaking to strangers at, you know, easily, um, going out of your way to make conversation all the time, um, doing... Uh, I thought we were winding down or something. Like no, it was shows, just so. someone just decided to play the yeah. most beautiful yeah. song yeah. I've yeah. ever heard. It was, <laughs> it was majestic. So, so, so if you think of the, the habitual behaviors, and at the lowest level would be individual behaviors. So if I asked you right now, you know, to turn around and wave to someone, for example, so that would be an individual behavior. Those are the easiest ones, obviously, to change. And if I was going to try and enact, a, 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 make a, a consistent change in you, the first thing, of course, would be to identify, well, what are those individual behaviors that ultimately lead up to those tra traits or factors that we want to change in that particular direction? So let's think of some individual, in your case, conscientious behaviors that you could do, and we'd identify some subset of them, and then the goal would be to get you to do those habitually. Mm. And that's where you begin to get some inroads, at least from a really concrete way. In so washing the dishes is this huge pain in the ass, right. and then on day 20, it's like, oh, I guess I can wash the dishes. This exactly. isn't so bad. And, and so that's kind of one little cluster, if you will. It's not the whole thing, and of course, that's still just that's a little... That's not the whole that's thing! That's not the whole thing, Damn. unfortunately. <laughs> we still have more to do. <laughs> now, I'm talking about this from a really concrete standpoint. We could, of course, get much deeper, so you know, the question might be, why aren't you wanting to do the dishes, or why aren't you wanting to do X, Y, and then we may get to a little higher level of understanding of what someone's resistance is. You know, I say, well, my, that's how my parents were, and I'm not going to be them. Let's say if those hypothetical scenarios yeah. apply. Or, you know, you can think right. of, you know, I think I just don't want to waste all of my time that I'm wasting on other things. <laughs> like I'm just wasting it in so many better, better ways. ways. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So you could be daydreaming while you're doing the dishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... But there, so a lot depends, of course, on what is the root of the behavior, what's holding that behavior in place. And what you find is as you start first with these very simple behavioral things, if people can do those, then there's probably nothing behind that holding. In other words, you can do the individual behavior, you can en enact the habit, and then the change occurs relatively easily. As you start getting resistance, 
to those kinds of changes. That kind of raises the question of there's maybe more to it than just I don't feel like doing it. There's something else maintaining that if someone's identified as a problematic behavior. Uh, and then you might want to dig a little deeper. But that's at least the connection if you're thinking about the change from the factors and the traits down to the individual behaviors. That would be um, how we would sort of track that out, both theoretically and practically in the course of they say therapy. I mean, it is amazing how nuanced everything in life is. There's just like you can keep on digging and digging. Like if you take something like what what uh, what what factors influence openness, and and it can be uh, if if you have a low immune system or you're sick. Um, your your biology will be like, oh, your your immune system is busy taking in all of the parasites that are already in the environment, so don't go out and explore more and expose yourselves to more work for your immune system to do. And most people, this would never, if you haven't ever read about any of this stuff, it would never, ever occur to you that that's the case. And then it translates to, to these bigger things where eventually um, it, it leads up to... Um, uh, like political beliefs, people that are lower on openness tend to be conservative, higher on openness tend to be liberal. So it, it could have been a simple thing like you got sick as a child or, or, or your parents never took you traveling much as a child and then you grow up to be conservative or, or your parents were a bunch of hippies and you grow up to be... Um, uh, to be liberal. And there's all these... It, it does seem like it is just a, a little... It seems like it's a little harder than just being like, ah, well, and you said, obviously, it's a little harder than just like, oh, I'll wash the dishes for a while, problem solved. Right. Um, but what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is life is impossible, everybody. <laughs> it is really, really hard. Um, there's, there's actually kind of a, a quick way to change one of those personality features, like openness in particular, hallucinogenic drugs. Yes, hallucinogenic <laughs> <laughs> drugs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Julian's what? trying to get some quick plugs for so, my show tonight. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a show tonight at 9 o'clock all about psychedelics yeah. because I am high on the openness scale. Sing, single mm-hmm. dose. Sing- right? you, you've read that, haven't you? Have you read this? Do you, um, do you know anything about this? Well, it's happened for me. It's yeah. Just, yeah, you're, you're, it's you're just, living it. Yeah, yeah, living I'm, it. I'm living so, it. So, yeah, a, a single dose of hallucinogenic drugs changes your scores permanently on personality scales, on, on, on openness to experience. And that's why I'm very, very high on openness. I'm high on openness, T-shirt. Um, that's just to, there, there was just one question that I thought of, and I, I passed over it, or I, I forgot about it. My ADHD kicked in. This is going to seem like a bit of a tangent now. I'm just very curious. Is, is there a connection between um, ADHD and... And depression. I mentioned before you can you can go and, and say analyze poetry, and someone uses I a lot, and it turns out that they're more depressed because depression comes along with introspection. And ADHD seems to there seems to be a lot of daydreaming attached to that, which is also introspection. Um, I, absolutely, those things are related. I mean, the the idea in general that there are these different categories of mental health problems is you know, really something that we make up to organize them, but not really how we work as people. Um, ADHD certainly is related to things like depression because, you know, you're not functioning as well in in your environment as you want to. Like I mentioned earlier, you have social problems. People don't really want to be around you, and that can make you more withdrawn, and that can lead into depression. 
Um, but also, anytime you have a mental health problem, you really have what's unique for you. They really exist much more on a continuum where you have your own kind of little intersection of whatever your difficulties are, and that's what shows up. So if you have one mental health problem like ADHD, you're much more likely to have others. Depression is kind of the common cold of mental illness, so that comes up a lot anyway, right. um, and it's definitely going to co- come up with ADHD. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to that point, I've, I remembered as I was filling out the inventory test, there was questions that were like, um, I rarely feel lonely or blue. And it was hard because I never, ever feel lonely, but I often feel depression. And so it, it, is, it is strange that, I mean, it's, I guess it's not that strange. We're all individuals and everybody's different. That's the message of the evening. We are all unique snowflakes, everybody. <laughs> Brad Pitt was wrong. Um, uh, does anyone have any questions at this point? Yeah? Actually, do you want to? Hi. Um, I have two questions, actually. One is short and one is kind of complicated. Um, the first one is, um, has the ICD-9, uh, ICD-10, has that helped at all with diagnosing these kids or, like, made it easier for parents to understand or made it easier for you to tell people? And the second one is... Um, Borderline traits, I've been, like, I do assessment, and I've been seeing them a lot lately. Like, it seems like a lot, like everybody's got at least one. I've seen it so much, I'm starting to think about whether it's actually a disorder or if it's just a natural reaction to what seems like to me society having less um, consistent balance between people. Because I was reading, like, there's this thing called ghosting, you know, where people say, well, they just leave relationships and don't. And I feel like this is happening more and more in society where people have no respect for interpersonal bonds, and maybe that's what's causing the mistrust that's leading to more borderline traits. Um, but that's just what I thought, so I want to get your guys' opinions on them. I, I think you should come sit up here. <laughs> what, what, what's, what, what's, that, what's the first? I didn't know what the first jar, yeah. bit of jargon so, was, yeah. by the way. Yeah, kaboom. You, you know what you're doing, man. All right. So uh, the, the ICD-10, and Len, you can kind of jump in here too, is kind of the more worldwide diagnostic manual, and it's pretty much what's been adopted you know, universally. So in the United States for a lot of time, we gave our own sort of diagnostic and statistical manual codes, and now we've just all moved to this worldwide plan, kind of like we should all be on metric. Um, you know, similar to that. So in terms of explaining things better, I mean, there are some new diagnoses like disruptive mood dysregulation disorder in kids. That, you know, um, Shane, what you were talking about before in terms of depression and uh, ADHD, that is a mood disorder that I've diagnosed a bunch since it's come out, and it's more like depression that you see in kids and that it's just irritability all the time. So it's kids who are just really grouchy, um, they can be explosive, and they're just really hard to, to be around. Um, and the reason why that disorder was developed for the ICD-10, the Universal Manual, but it's also in all of our diagnostic things, is because, and this is getting a little bit to your next question, you were mentioning uh, borderline, but also a lot of kids were diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but it turned out oh, that's kind of should be a lifelong problem if you have it. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. But when kids got older, they didn't have that diagnosis anymore. Um, They tended to have depression. And so disruptive mood dysregulation disorder was developed for that. So in that way, the the ICD-10 or the new diagnoses have been pretty helpful. 
Um, in terms of explaining things to parents, it's pretty complicated that, you know, we are kind of special snowflakes. Um, and it's hard with things like depression where, you know, you can eat too much on depression, you can eat too little on depression, you can sleep too more, you can sleep less. You know, with ADHD, you can be zoned out all the time, you can be on the go all the time. So it's a, a complicated thing for parents to understand. Um, you know, you were talking about uh, borderline traits. You know, borderline is a very, borderline personality disorder is a very stigmatized, stigmatized disorder. Um, and it's basically people who um, they say, you know, have a lot of instability in them, can do a lot of high impulse things, a lot of high risk things. Um, and it's a way that has typically been used to label people. Um, and one of the good things about it is there's a lot of great treatments for it, but it's a common thing to do. Just like when people go to medical school and they're like, I have every medical illness you know, ever that's happened. People read things uh, in you know, the mental health manual and say, I am depressed and I have borderline personality disorder and I'm psychotic and I'm ADHD, um, because we all have a little bit of all of these things in us all the time. And just to jump on that, as we talk about the different uh, trait descriptors in any disorders, whether it's borderline or any of the other personality disorders, for example. I know where you're going with this. They're perfect. They're perfect, exactly. <laughs> no, the, the, the key, the, really the key is whether or not they are uh, resulting in, for example, dysfunction for the individual, because you might have a particular trait, but if it's not necessarily resulting in significant dysfunction, it doesn't really then fall in the category of a disorder. Likewise, are you experiencing distress? There's sort of a number of little... Um, features that you have to add in. So it's not enough that I would necessarily check the box on a couple of these uh, different diagnostic categories, but you also have to have the added feature of it causing some significant problems, distress in you, et cetera. And if those are present, then they may meet the threshold for an actual diagnosis. But you, you are correct in your point saying, yeah, a lot of people have these different, you know, so uh, obsessive compulsive traits. There's a lot of people who are perfectionistic and you could check some of those OCD type traits but if it isn't actually interfering with your life, and in fact, for some people, it's quite beneficial. You know, they use it to achieve other things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve. Then it wouldn't, even though they have those common traits, they still wouldn't necessarily be having that disorder. So I just wanted to add that as a, an element, because otherwise we could find something, and probably we could open up the ICD here and find something for all of us on almost every single category. Yeah, like I'm OCD when it comes to public restrooms, and that's most people. Yeah. It, do, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily OCD in general. Right, right. Um, any other questions? And by the way, he cheated because he had, what do you have, a master's in psychology? Am I right? Show off. You don't have to have a master's in psychology to ask a question. No, you're fine. I just had to make a joke at your expense for being nice enough to support the show because... <laughs> My uh, average agreeable. No, agree, no agreeable. No agreeable. <laughs> um, behind him. Yeah. Hold on. So as time progresses and there's more knowledge about uh, diagnosing various parts of a personality or a person's psyche, is this just labeling something that's always been there, or are there cultural? and environmental factors that are uh, furthering the pace of basically the entire world's mental dysfunction? That's another great question. You've got a great, very smart audience, obviously, here. Uh, uh, I think a little bit of both is probably an accurate way to characterize that. So certainly, 
as we understand uh, how people function and how they don't function very well, how dysfunctions as occur, I think we have a better understanding and also our methods of assessment are improving. Um, I think that's, you know, in fact, each iteration, each version of the ICD, and previously when we used the DSM uh, pretty widely, uh, each version, the idea is to make it better, to, you know, better understand and better capture these disorders. But I think you raised the other important feature here, which is, how is the world, our evolving culture, et cetera, changing us as well? Um, and I think, there, I think there's some merit to that. I mean, we're going back to the uh, ADHD discussion, I mean, I, I we weren't built for cubicles, well, our we hunter-gatherer ancestors. I, I think even you could start thinking about the technology and its kind of an, uh, incessant stimulation uh, that would occur and kids getting exposed to that earlier and earlier and thus needing... Um, you know, again, you, you kind of watch a typical movie today and a typical movie from 30 years ago. Most kids are just bored to death in the first five minutes. There's not nearly enough going on, right? There's, well, there's character development. Oh, forget that. There's got to be a lot of action. There's got to be things going on. And so, in a sense, I think our culture is resulting in changing us as well. And so I think the disorders that are going to manifest are likely to change. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that we're wired to be such social creatures, but then we watch TV and there's this part of our brain that doesn't that can't can't really decipher between you know whether those are whether the show Friends is our friends or not. They think that it's our friends. And then you and you watch Game of Thrones and there's a party like, "Oh my god, what's going to happen with these dragons?" Like this is a real uh, crisis at, at some level of of your brain. I think a, a cultural shift that's happened that is positive that will keep happening, though, is that, you know, we, with ourselves as adults or with our kids, you know, if our kid gets strep throat or has an ear infection or, you know, something like that, it's, we have no issues with it. Our kid is sick. We'll just take them in and get them some help that they need. But with mental health problems, there, you know, has been a lot of stigma of, you know, bringing your kid in, you know, my kid can't have any difficulties. That means I've failed as a parent if my kid has any difficulties. When it's really no different, you know, there's just a lot of things that crop up in the world that can cause those difficulties. And hopefully we're having a shift where, you know, it's more okay to have, you know, mental health problems just like we have physical health problems and you can just go in and get fixed up because you can. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's, it's not just that we're diagnosing things and causing all these problems that aren't there. I think that having some difficulties with your brain, just like with your body, are things that just should happen as part of life. Right. Um, all right. One, one last short question, if you want. All right. Last one. When you're dealing with an IDD population with a dual diagnosis... Does it, change, does it change the way that you deal with the behaviors as far as with the stigma of having the IDD diagnosis? Can you, can you I, repeat the beginning uh, of that again? I'm when, sorry. You have, when you're dealing with people that have intellectual and developmental disabilities as well as a dual diagnosis of some behavioral diagnosis, does it change the way that you help them to work on those diagnoses or as, as far as the behaviors go? Uh, absolutely. So the, um, the question, refer, uh, again, again, what high-level questions you're getting, man. It's amazing. Who in here doesn't have a psychology degree? <laughs> um, so uh, she's referring to uh, an intellectual uh, disability disorder. So previously, you might have known it as, uh, say, mild mental retardation or some form of that. Mm-hmm. That would have been the terminology right. that was used before. Um, as you have individuals that are intellectually more limited, 
then it does markedly change how we do interventions. Uh, and that's true for adults as well as children. So the person's level of cognitive functioning gives you a sense of basically where you can meet them and what you can do with them. So as you have higher functioning individuals, you might be doing a lot of insight-oriented therapy, as an example, uh, or a lot of cognitive therapy where you're having them focus on their thoughts, etc. As the cognitive functioning goes lower, then you're actually much more successful if you focus on behaviors. Uh, rehearsing those behaviors. So rather than trying to get to understanding, et cetera, you really, your first pass is just saying, okay, we're identifying these as problematic behaviors. We're, we're, we want to make sure you notice them, some clear cues for them, and then giving them some alternative behaviors that are less maladaptive. Um, and then practicing the behavioral rehearsal in different settings, et cetera. That would be the kind of preferred intervention as individuals' cognitive functioning is lower. So certainly someone with an intellectual disability disorder would be, that would be one of the first passes. Yeah, and I think a good thing is that you even mentioned dual diagnosis. Something that happens a lot with people who are intellectually disabled is that people don't really think of them as possibly having other mental health problems when they often do. They can have depression and anxiety and a bunch of other things that can be treated and can make their whole life worse when they're untreated. And you know, kids with intellectual disabilities are maltreated at many times the rate that kids without them are, and they need trauma treatment too, and a lot of them end up being missed. Um, and like Len said, the types of treatments that you do are different because kids have a lot of naivete. So rather than you know, having them change their thoughts, you'd play out, role play a bunch of different situations to help them be more effective in those situations. Uh, Julian, are we enlightened yet? The, the audience is definitely. <laughs> I, I, I'm in agreement with all this. This game. <laughs> yeah, what they said. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my favorite answer. Um, I, all right, crazy, crazy tangent. I know, but I, I'm fascinated uh, to hear just a little bit. Can you sum up just a little bit of some of these ideas that you've been tinkering with, with me- with the possibility of of uh, measuring um, enlightenment? You have 30 seconds. Oh, 30. <laughs> I only need 15, so I'll, I'll take my time. Um, well, I don't, I don't think I've been measuring enlightenment, but I've been, I'm interested in this, um, the possibility of developing a, a neuroscientifically coherent and testable theory of this um, stuff called, that, that Buddhist people call enlightenment. And so I sort of threw that one out there. You might as well shoot the moon, right, if you're going to go for a big question. And I, I thought that, that would be a fantastic question to wrap my life up with. But the, the idea of enlightenment um, centers around a lot of the, the themes we've been discussing, themes of suffering, things of um, dissatisfaction, depression, um, and so the, these Buddhist people keep telling us that, there, that there's this possibility that you can actually overcome certain kinds of dissatisfaction with certain kinds of understanding, um, with insight into the nature of um, the interdependence of things, that, that phenomena are empty in and of themselves, that they depend on um, the way that different factors are coming together to produce the phenomenon, um, that certain kinds of um, behaviors like greed and and, um, 
and, and certain kinds of disruptive emotions arise from ways that we um, rehearse states and that we habitually behave. And so when you get to the point where you can step back from habitual behaviors and create some space, what's going on in the mind then? What's going on with a person when they can, they can reliably pull that off? Everybody um, can do it sometimes, um, hopefully. And, yeah. So, like, the idea of meditation is you can eventually kind of pull back, and rather than yeah. having these thoughts and, like, acting on these thoughts, you're observing them. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of a subtle process. Like, the kinds of things that um, we think about as suffering, like, you know, you have mild-treated kids and suffering imposed by the external world and people who live in poverty suffering imposed by the external world, things happening that are... Big things and and the, and the big questions in life. You know, you're gonna you're gonna die, and it's probably gonna hurt like a mother. You know, <laughs> I mean, just to, I was just hoping you a, would remind everyone yeah, of that before. That's how I. So you got those things happening, <laughs> but those aren't the things that, on a daily basis, really eat away at us. What eat away at us? You know, you, you may have you may be at the most successful point in your entire life. Yeah, there's still this um, underlying dissatisfaction. And so the question is, what is causing that? And your interest in evolutionary psychology, I think, tells us a little bit about what's causing that is we are kind of doing that to ourselves. It's a trick we're playing on ourselves. Right. Speaking of kind of not being built for this world, we we have this same very basic um, stress stress mechanism software that uh, most animals have that set off this stress response when a lion's chasing them or something and then they get away from the lion and then there's a what I guess maybe called a parasympathetic response that dials everything down and turns off all those stress hormones but we don't have that because we don't we our threats are like 401ks yeah so we don't ever turn it off and even even when not turning it off is not helping Right. Um, you know, your 401k, what it is is what it is right now. You want to be, like, proactive and try to do stuff about it. But when there's nothing you can do about it when you're laying in bed at night and the, that rumination about it is only doing you damage, but evolutionarily you're driven to always be trying to attain more, get more, go get more. you got to have more. And... There's no end to that. Mm. You feed that appetite, you make that appetite greater. You get that thing you're trying to get, you're going to make yourself want something that's even harder to get. So the, that desire keeps growing. Donald and, Trump seems so happy, though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You look at him and you think, how's the most miserable human on the planet <laughs> Like thinking that this next thing is going to make him happy? I, I kind of often think we should have... like. Um, signs in front of shopping malls that say it won't make you happy <laughs> you know because yeah. it's, it's not going to make you happy right. but that's kind of where I am with thinking about um, what it is that's going on when you notice that this stuff ain't going to do it you have to have another way of, of cultivating that and so the Buddhist folks say actually there is another way and so you don't have to believe it. 
but there's a way of trying it. And certain interesting things happen in the brain that we've started to identify. And by we, I don't mean me. I mean, like, I'm, I'm like the smallest peon in the world in the field studying this stuff. Um, but the, um, the field has started to identify things that are happening in the brain when people are able to build that pause in, step back, stabilize their attention, not ruminate um, compulsively about, about things, and to sort of let thoughts in, notice that they're there, notice that they pass like everything else does, and then really kind of come back to the moment. Um, that's kind of that's the stuff I'm interested in understanding. That's wonderful. I think the goal is for all of us is what we've learned is that potentially we could all feel good just sitting there, um, and and that's it. There's an, the last T-shirt of the night. Thank you guys so much for coming out to the very first Here We Are podcast live. How about a hand for Julian Keith? Kate Nooner and Len Lecce, everybody. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved doing it. The live audience seemed to love it as well, and so I'm sure you guys enjoyed it too. Most of my jokes even landed. (laughs) Some of them fell a little flat, but it went, went pretty well all around. Great guests. Um, great conversation. Again, you can write me, let me know what you think. And, um, if you happen to be a first time listener and just getting into the show, please, um, I, uh, like to encourage everyone to go onto iTunes and write the podcast. It helps out, helps me out tremendously reaching new people, um, because that's how they decide who gets featured where and all that it's it's more than just downloads it's how many ratings you get and so all of the wonderful ratings that i've gotten in the past from all of you guys i very much appreciate and next week on the program uh we're we're doing another i think it's the fifth or sixth charity episode that we've done now trying to do them about every other month we're doing another one next week with uh, emily baxter who's the founder of we are all criminals this really cool site that takes people, people write essays about past criminal behavior that they did that they got away with, you know, when they were young and dumb or whatever, and, and how it would have changed their life if they would have been caught. And then she finds people with parallel stories in jail who were caught and a lot of times have these ridiculous sentences. And, um, and you know, the idea is, is that, uh, that these are human beings that, um, made a mistake and, um, Oftentimes, uh, it's it's some of the silliest stuff that we've all done, and uh, the court has just thrown the book at them. And so we talk a lot about the prison system, and we explore a lot of my past criminal behavior and all of the stuff that I've gotten away with. So I think it will be pretty entertaining for all. Make sure and tune in next week, and you can go to weareallcriminals.org org and you can learn more there you can contribute your own essay anonymously and be featured on there anonymously 
really cool project. I think you guys are real cool for being a fan of this podcast and for listening all the way to the end. You're my very favorite ones, the ones that listen all the way to the very end. Uh, There's a special place in my heart for you, so thank you. And I will talk with you next week. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like (laughs) it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you fuck 